It's the end of November 2020, and the COVID-19 pandemic is heading in the wrong direction as healthcare providers and the public weary of the ongoing situation. Let's dig into some of the latest updates here on this special coronavirus bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you, The Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with others. I'm now publishing these COVID-19 pandemic update episodes at the end of each month. These episodes are always free of corporate sponsorship, and this is solely about education and information as a public service. Remember, the show notes are always available. This episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word COVID-19-18. All information in these episodes about COVID-19 reference the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions. Please note that the situation is changing by the moment, and anything I share may have changed by the time this episode airs. Please note that nothing shared in the course of any of these episodes is intended for diagnosis or treatment, so please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local Department of Health, or any other evidence-based source that you trust. And if you hear or read something I've shared anywhere that appears to be erroneous or misguided, email me at keithatnursekeith.com with any evidence or data so that I can learn and then post a public correction. Thanks for understanding. Stay safe and keep informed. And note that this episode is being recorded on November 25th, 2020, the day before Thanksgiving here in the United States. So folks, some grim news out there. As of today, November 25th, the U.S. has recorded 2 million new cases of COVID-19 in two weeks. That's two weeks of a million cases each. In the last week, the U.S. has added an average of 173,000 new cases per day, and epidemiologists are predicting that the number of deaths in the coming weeks may exceed the spring peak, despite our improvements in treatment over the course of the pandemic. The U.S. is now at 11 million total cumulative cases, and I believe we're nearing 260,000 deaths, a level of death not seen since the springtime. And, you know, I still hear people downplaying that, you know, a thousand deaths a day or, you know, a thousand five hundred deaths a day isn't really that much in the scheme of things. And, you know, I always say, tell that to the people who've lost their loved ones. And, you know, I always go back to put it in perspective to September 11th, 2001, we lost about 3,000 people at that time. And think about how we've mourned those 3,000 people for 19 years. And just think about a 9-11 size death toll occurring just here in the United States every three days. I actually had the COVID-19 pandemic hit really close to home not very long ago. It's earlier this month, actually, when a very beloved friend of mine who was 88 years old and obviously not terribly healthy, but still, she died from COVID at home on hospice just a few weeks ago. So, you know, when you know and love someone who dies from this virus, it definitely has an impact and it has certainly 
impacted me on a pretty deep level. So on November 23rd of 2020, just a couple days ago, the U.S. posted its sharpest increase in weekly deaths since August. New cases rose 13% in the week ending November 22nd. So that 168,000 to 175,000 new cases per day is pretty remarkable and should certainly give us pause. What really gives me pause right now, and by the time you hear this, the Thanksgiving holiday weekend will be over here in the United States, but millions and millions of people are moving through airports and driving to see family and loved ones. And I get it. I understand. And millions more are planning for Christmas travel, even as epidemiologists and virologists and public health officials urge Americans to stay home. I'm staying home. I'm having Thanksgiving of one here in my house by myself. And while planes may have better circulation and air ventilation, which we know that they do right now, most planes, not every airline is leaving those middle seats open, which actually doesn't do that much, honestly, from my perspective. And people are still in contact with one another in restrooms, crowding around doors to board airplanes, on airport shuttles, and then all the other points of contact like stores and pharmacies and all the places where they have to go when they're traveling. And then we also have many asymptomatic carriers bringing this disease all around to grandma, to their uncle, to their cousin, to their loved ones, to their parents. These vulnerable folks are getting potentially exposed and these asymptomatic carriers of which we are now told there are many are spreading the virus potentially anywhere they go as they travel. So that's kind of where I'm at in terms of this past Thanksgiving holiday and then the upcoming Christmas and New Year's holidays. Now in other news, Montana State University has been selected to lead a two-year study about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on nurses, who are, of course, we all know, the largest group of U.S. healthcare workers. And this is a study focusing on changes in employment, earnings, and the supply of nursing. And it's being funded by grants from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the John A. Hartford Foundation, the Johnson & Johnson Foundation, and the Johnson & Johnson Center for Health Worker Innovation, as well as the United Health Group. That information will be completed and available to us in 2022. Now, here's a statement from the organizations who are putting together and conducting this two-year study of nurses. Quote, it is imperative that our workforce research include an analysis of the pandemic's impact on nursing assistants, licensed vocational nurses, and professional registered nurses, especially those working in nursing homes, said Terry Fulmer, president of the John A. Hartford Foundation, who recently served on the Independent Coronavirus Commission on Safety and Quality in Nursing Homes. The illness and deaths in these settings have taken a terrible toll on residents and families, he said, and on these essential staff who are the backbone of care for our most frail, older adults and people with disabilities. 
The study is also going to forecast the number of registered nurses needed through 2030. So prior to the pandemic, forecasts indicated that the number of registered nurses would increase by at least a million. Now experts are saying that that number is unclear, and we definitely need to keep our finger on the pulse of the nursing workforce. Speaking of nurses as well, some of you may have heard, I hope you've heard, that the president-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's transition team created a COVID advisory board that actually did not include, guess what, a nurse. There were scientists, epidemiologists, physicians, and no nurse. So as of my last check of the change.org uh, petition that's been circulating, and I'll have a link in the show notes, over 37,000 people had signed, and I hope it's nearing 50,000 at this point. And an excellent op-ed in the LA Times from November 23rd, I'm going to actually have the authors of this op-ed on the show, hopefully after the new year. But let me read you a relatively long quote from this op-ed because it's incredibly well-written. Nurses have always stood at the nexus of medical decisions, nursing care, patients' needs, and family concerns. The pandemic has only accelerated the pace and raised the stakes for nurses to balance these roles. When an intensive care unit doctor intubates a COVID patient and puts the person on a ventilator, the nurse assists in placing the tube and calls the patient's family to share updates. Nurses make the minute-to-minute -minute treatment adjustments that help keep COVID patients alive. When a hospital experiences a virus surge, nurses juggle patients to ensure those with COVID receive the care they need while keeping other patients safe from the virus. Nurses know the communities where they work, and those communities trust nurses. We rely on nurses as our first line of defense against the virus, and community trust in them will be crucial to educate and reassure wary patients receiving future vaccines in community clinics, hospitals, and nursing facilities. When hospitals run out of personal protective equipment, nurses pay dearly. More than 1,500 nurses worldwide have died from the COVID-19 pandemic. Most nurses, many of whom are women and many of color, don't have the luxury of walking off the job to protect themselves, while labor unions have attempted to hold large healthcare systems accountable for worker safety. Significant problems such as dangerous understaffing persist and will likely grow as hospital beds fill and the pandemic wears on. So that's a quote from this article in the LA Times, which I'll link in the show notes. And it is by Stacy Torres and Andrew Penn, who's a nurse practitioner. I'm definitely going to be having them on the show. And they are making the case for the importance of nurses in the healthcare delivery, obviously, and why a nurse needs to be on the COVID advisory board. So the link again to that article and the petition will be in the show notes. Now, speaking of healthcare providers, let's talk about physicians for a second. The New York Times reported in an article just the other day that more physicians are leaving their practice. About 8% of the doctors surveyed, there were 3,500 doctors surveyed by the Physicians Foundation, had reported closing their offices in recent months. And that could be as many as 16,000 practices and another 4% said they plan to shutter within the next year, and 
have reduced their staff due to the pandemic. So where do all those employees go? Nursing assistants, medical assistants, nurses, um, medical office managers, receptionists, and administrative assistants, and human resources professionals. Where are they? Where are they working? And another article on physicians for the New York Times stated that 50% of physicians surveyed don't believe the pandemic will be under control until after June 1st, 2021. And I actually agree with that prognostication. Let's see. Now, another aspect of physicians related to critical care is that Public health experts have been warning about a shortage of critical care doctors, known as intensivists. And this is a specialty that usually requires an extra several years of medical training. There are now 37,400 intensivists in the U.S., according to the American Hospital Association. But nearly half the country's acute care hospitals don't have an intensivist on staff. And a lot of those hospitals are in rural areas that are begging intensivists to come to places like Iowa, Oklahoma, or North Dakota, where they are needed at least temporarily to help out with the current surge. Now, in terms of the pandemic getting under control, let's talk about a couple things that have come about over this past month. Recently, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, granted emergency authorization for the experimental antibody treatment known as Regeneron, which President Trump received after he was diagnosed with COVID-19. And this gives doctors and nurse practitioners and other providers another option for treating COVID-19 patients. Now, the, the issue here is that it's a cocktail of two powerful antibodies that have shown in early studies that they can keep the infection in check. However, it's limited in scope. So if anyone asks you about this Regeneron miracle, just make sure you understand and you can educate other people that it's for people 12 years old and over who've tested positive for the virus and are at high risk for developing severe COVID-19. However, Evidence has only shown that it works early in the course of the disease before the virus has gained a foothold, and it's not authorized by the FDA for the use for use in people who are hospitalized or people who need oxygen. So that's something to bear in mind. Regeneron sounds great. I know the president really touted that but not many people have had access to it. And now it's really only going to be for people early, very early in the course of the disease who are not hospitalized or on oxygen. So great news, but also somewhat disappointing news. Now, speaking of great news, that also can give us pause and make us think, hmm, how is this going to work out? I want to do a little breakdown of the vaccines. There's been three vaccines that have been shown to be largely effective and are seeking emergency authorization as I speak. And I just want to address those three so that we can all gain some clarity about where we are with the vaccine. So the first one I want to talk about is AstraZeneca, which came out just this past week. They're working with Oxford University, and they said that their 
vaccine was up to 90% effective in presenting the disease. This is interim analysis of trials in the UK and Brazil of a vaccine developed by Oxford University and manufactured by AstraZeneca. So researchers at the University of Oxford, they built this vaccine using an adenovirus that typically causes common colds in chimpanzees, and they genetically altered the virus so that it carried a gene for a coronavirus protein, which would then train a person's immune system to recognize this particular coronavirus. And adenovirus-based vaccines are being tested by Johnson & Johnson, also in China and Italy and other countries, also in Russia. And these types of adenovirus-based vaccines have been tested for decades, but it wasn't till July of this year when the first one was licensed, when J&J got approval from European regulators for an Ebola vaccine, which was a adenovirus-based vaccine. Now, the thing with this, it's very confusing. And if you read the research and read the news articles on this, AstraZeneca and Oxford University reported that it was up to 90% effective. They gave a half dose of the vaccine followed by a full dose a month later. And then they actually revealed that that half dose was administered erroneously during the trial. And no one really knows why the half dose appears on some level to be more effective than the full doses. And some are theorizing that this might be due to the body mounting a more robust immune response because the half dose mimicked more closely a normal infection in the body. I don't really know if I completely get what's going on here, but AstraZeneca is the third major company to report late stage results for a potential vaccine. And of course, we're all waiting anxiously for these vaccines to become available. Now, Pfizer's vaccine has been shown 90% effective, a much better than expected efficacy rate if they can hold on to that through more trials. The problem with this vaccine that Pfizer has developed is that it's messenger RNA technology. And messenger RNA, I've learned, is very, very unstable unless it's kept at ultra, ultra cold temperatures, negative 75 degrees Celsius, which is 50 degrees colder than any vaccine we currently use in the United States. So does your physician office, pharmacy, or state lab have freezers that go to minus 75 degrees Celsius? Not really. So handling and storing this vaccine and the cold chain that's going to be required for it is pretty darn significant. And this will require dry ice, special gloves to handle the dry ice, and how are we going to make sure this can get properly distributed so that the cold chain is intact? So dry ice is in short supply in many parts of the country, and the Immunization Action Coalition were shocked when they heard the storage requirements for this new vaccine. So we're going to have to wait and see how this Pfizer vaccine can actually be utilized. So 
Another vaccine that came out from Moderna was also said in early studies to be 94.5% effective. This is another messenger RNA vaccine, which also has to be kept cold, but only at minus 20 degrees Celsius. And this is very similar to the temperature where we keep the chickenpox, the varicella vaccine. So it can be kept in a fairly normal freezer that we might have in a doctor's office, a pharmacy, or a public health department. And it can also be kept in the refrigerator for up to 30 days, whereas the Pfizer vaccine, after five days in the refrigerator, got to throw it away. And I'll just point out, going back to the AstraZeneca vaccine that I mentioned first, the AstraZeneca vaccine can actually be kept in a normal refrigerator. There's no ultra-cold storage needed. So it's pretty obvious to me that we're going to have multiple vaccines. We need multiple vaccines. And one of the major issues that I've discussed here on the show before and that we're going to have to discuss more is that having been a public health nurse for a town of 25,000 in Amherst, Massachusetts, back around the time of H1N1, 2008 to 2009, I was conducting mass vaccination drills. And I can tell you that even for a town of 20 to 25,000, vaccinating 20,000 people is an enormous logistical undertaking. And we don't just need personnel. We need that cold chain that I just mentioned in terms of transporting. We also need enough of the vaccine to distribute it around the country to everyone who needs it. We need to decide who's going to get it first, healthcare workers, et cetera, et cetera, the elderly, the frail, the vulnerable. And then Remember how early on in the pandemic we were talking about, well, COVID-19 testing is awesome, but we're out of swabs. We can't find swabs. We can't find the reagent that we put the swabs in. Well, are we going to have enough syringes? Are we going to have enough needles, enough alcohol swabs? All of the things we need to actually get a vaccine in the arms of patients. And I can bet you when we want to give, I don't know, several hundred million doses of a vaccine, are we going to have enough of the basic equipment that's needed so that we can actually get it in those arms so that people can mount an immune defense? So my hope is that this good early data of more than 90% effectiveness and relative safety is going to increase public trust in the vaccine. And we're going to be able to get to that herd immunity, which I think is somewhere around 60% of the population being vaccinated, somewhere along those lines. Although actually, I just heard news recently that some preliminary data is also showing that People who've been infected previously with COVID-19 may have immunity much longer than originally thought. But stay tuned for that because we really don't know how this is all going to pan out. We don't know what's happening with people who are called COVID long haulers who are developing all sorts of different problems with various organ systems. You know, we're having symptoms for months and we might even be seeing people with long-term symptoms over years after having been infected with the COVID-19 virus. So the vaccines are going to be important. We're going to need a lot of people out there to, to 
to actually give them, I'm definitely going to volunteer or try to get out there to do it. We're going to need more contact tracers. We're going to need more ability to sequester and quarantine people as needed. And just so you know, there are more and more remote jobs for COVID-19 testing, supervisors, educators, all being required to be nurses. And also there's other remote positions opening up as well as the pandemic continues and actually surges into the winter of 2020 to 2021. So I'm feeling somewhat encouraged and also obviously discouraged by the amount of travel, the amount of people who are not heeding the advice of epidemiologists and public health experts. And I'm also very, very concerned for our nurse brethren out there who are really suffering right now. Not only are physicians closing practices, some nurses are feeling they just need to leave the bedside because they're completely burnt out. And my heart goes out to those folks out there who are working so hard on the front lines, whether in clinics, community health centers, emergency rooms, urgent care centers, minute clinics, ERs, ICUs, step-down units, etc. Wherever you're working, you are on the front line. And if your loved one is ringing up people at Trader Joe's, if they're delivering mail, if they're doing door-to-door -door delivery of food, if they're driving Uber or Lyft, they are frontline workers too. Whether they're driving a bus or doing anything else, there are so many people on the front lines and our hearts go out to all of them. And remember that people can bang pots and pans for nurses at 7 p.m. to thank them for working. They can put signs saying, heroes work here and thank you first responders and paramedics and EMTs. But those folks need PPE, they need relief, they need support from the government. And my hope is that when we transition to the Biden administration on January 20th at 12 p.m. Eastern, that the administration's going to hit the ground running like they're saying they're going to start doing now that they have access to the process of transitioning to a new administration. And we will get this virus under control during the course of 2021. So let's root for the Biden administration and do everything we can to support their work and get nurses involved in the conversation. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to the special COVID-19 bonus episode recorded the day before Thanksgiving 2020, November 25th. The show notes with all the links to the articles I mentioned will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-18. I hope you feel informed from this episode and please take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your community. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities seeking to add a humanistic touch to professional education and to improve lives by partnering to address social ills. Check them out at arslonga.media, A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A.media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative high quality podcasts like Sanjay Gupta's Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction, the New England Journal of Medicine, 
Penn Nursing's Amplify Nursing podcast, and much more. Healthpodcastnetwork.com. The Nurse Keith Show is produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster and newsletter magician. Thank you to Rob and Mark for helping me spread the word and keep the wheels turning in the right direction. Stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse and healthcare professional who does the right thing in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from Santa Fe, New Mexico.